Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Washington Weekly Podcast on the UBS In The Now podcast channel. Today, we will update you on a range of developments within the Beltway and beyond. Joining me once again for the conversation, glad to welcome back Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. Shane, great to be back with you. Looking forward to our conversation and bringing our listeners, our clients up to speed on a range of topics. Welcome back. Yeah, Dan, thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So maybe, Shane, we could begin with Congress in the days following a bipartisan deal to raise the debt ceiling. As our listeners know, we had covered those developments over the past several weeks here on the podcast. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been facing a legislative blockade, so to speak, caused by some from within his own party protesting the outcome of the deal. So I'm curious what aspects of the deal are at the root of the protest and any impact this speak of with respect to the progress of the legislative agenda? Yeah, no, this is uh, a, a, an interesting turn. Um, you know, we you knew there would be some consequences for uh, Speaker McCarthy and his uh, deal uh, with President Biden and Democrats to increase the debt ceiling. And the consequences, you know, um, uh, everyone thought would be, you know, the far right, the, some of the Freedom Caucus members trying to Speaker McCarthy from uh, his speakership, but what they've done instead is try to essentially uh, paralyze paralyze, uh, floor activity. So, you know, really no bills can move forward. And so they're in negotiations now to see how they move ahead. But, you know, um, there is no, you know, path forward at this moment, but we'll we'll see where it takes us. But for the moment, it, it really paralyzes the legislative agenda because um, without the support of these uh, 10 or so uh, House Freedom Caucus members, you know, Speaker McCarthy is unable to really bring uh, bills to the floor and advance any of them. And some of these bills are, are bills that these uh, Freedom Caucus members, you know, actually support. But they have they feel frustrated about the debt uh, ceiling deal. Um, I think, you know, there are there are many things they're upset about, but I think primarily they feel like you know too much was given by Speaker McCarthy. If you look at what the original House uh, passed bill did, was it in, it cut spending four and a half trillion dollars over ten years, and in return increased the debt ceiling by a trillion and a half. Well, the final deal was kind of the opposite of that, where. It, uh, the bill cut one and a half trillion dollars in spending over ten years, but increased the debt ceiling by four trillion dollars. So they don't believe it was a good deal. They think you know it should have been uh, more like the House bill, and some of them maybe have even said it should have been even the final deal should have been uh, stronger than what the House passed, which is a little bit of a head scratcher because I've never seen negotiations. You know, uh, where someone not only won outright, but got even a better deal than their starting position. So it's interesting to see, you know, I think, um, the, they got to figure this way out of, out of this mess right now, um, so that they can move ahead and take care of legislation, you know, to fund government operations, uh, for the, for the upcoming fiscal year, pass a national defense authorization bill, a farm bill, and a few other important things that 
that, you know, are, are priority to, to be taken care of this year. So I, I think one of the tough parts of how we move forward is, you know, these 10 Freedom Caucus members really don't have a specific demand at this point. Uh, one of them was asked, you know, by a reporter, well, what do you want? And he said, I don't know. So, um, you know, I think the ongoing conversations will try and figure that out and, you know, we'll see where we end up, but it, it, there's a stalemate on the floor right now and we're going to see um, some paralysis for a few days uh, could last longer. Uh, but uh, Washington will always keep you on your toes like that, right? Yeah, and as we talked about, Shane, a lot of compromise was involved in getting a deal in place. Of course, cannot please everyone, though, to your point. Hopefully this is a short-term bump of the road and Congress can get back on track. I want to talk about the campaign trail a bit for President of the United States. This is in 2024. Those conversations have been heating up. This took a bit of a backseat as we've been talking about the debt ceiling over the past month or so, though if we spend a few moments just bringing our listeners up to speed on developments with respect to those who have declared their candidacy. I know it remains very fluid, though. What does the field look like today, Shane? Yeah, no, I mean, as as we had our attention on other matters, you know, people have been announcing their candidacy for president, um, you know, and the Republican field is really starting to take shape. Um, you know, the, obviously the top tier uh, contenders would be former President Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, there are a couple of other contenders like uh, Nikki Haley, uh, former Vice President Pence. Um, and, you know, this week we saw some announcements like Chris, uh, former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, uh, the current governor of uh, North Dakota, Doug Burgum, um, you know, former Governor Asa Hutchinson remains in the race, Vivek Ramswani, and um, Senator Tim Scott, who a lot of people are, you know, wondering if he could be the, you know, kind of viable alternative for Republicans to uh, former President Trump and uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. You know, I think one major distinction for Tim Scott is, uh, you know, his positive message compared to you know, former President Trump and Governor DeSantis, who are, you know, really kind of just going hard in uh, uh, and doubling down on, on kind of the style of Trump, we'll say. Um, and I think some Republicans are looking for that positive message, but I don't know if enough Republicans are looking for that positive message that Tim Scott will, will send. But you, you, to your question, I think we're, we're going to be in for an interesting summer where we have a few more people, you know, uh, declare that they're in or out, you know, and we had uh, a governor, uh, Chris Sununu of New Hampshire this week, you know, say he is in fact out of the race. And I think he's going to be trying to support uh, Governor Chris Christie and Governor Christie's efforts to basically go after former President Trump. Um I would expect by Labor Day that we basically have um, all declared candidates in the race. And I think that's when we'll really, you know, uh, ratchet up these campaign activities uh, for a fast and furious uh, fall and winter and into the real election season. 
Well, it sounds like a big debate stage will be needed. It's amazing how early on already how crowded the field is. And of course, this is a topic we'll be covering a lot in the months to come. So thank you for the update there, Shane. Maybe one more topic we can touch on this geopolitics. We've covered ongoing tensions between the U.S. and China many times. Recently, the White House did announce an attempt to re-engage China with quote-unquote dialogue and diplomacy. Any indication? as to what that approach consists of and how optimistic might the White House be of the success and maybe even a breakthrough from this latest round of diplomatic talks efforts. Yeah, these comments came, I think it was yesterday, by Kurt Campbell, who is the White House's national security coordinator for uh, Indo-Pacific region. So, you know, he's kind of uh, one of the top uh, people of the White House when it comes to uh, Asian policy matters. Um, and you're right, you know, he, he did uh, kind of uh, make these comments to reach out on uh, trying to re-engage China with uh, dialogue and diplomacy. Um, but in reality, it's uncertain certain what trajectory um, this is going to take. Um, I think, you know, this is start of, you know, uh, well, not the start because the, the Biden administration has reached out before and been rebuffed. And so this is just another effort, really. And I think eventually these conversations will be going, but, you know, the rift is still there from, um, you know, uh, the, the spy balloon and other Things have been going on for years now between uh, the U.S. and China. Um, you know, I think this is kind of a bit of a take on what China has done with other countries where they have that hotline to handle, um, you know, very sensitive matters to make sure that things don't escalate. I, I, you know, I think offering this olive, branch, olive branches is productive, but, you know, on the flip side, you know, you open up uh, today's newspaper and you see that China is giving several billion dollars to uh, Cuba to essentially have a spy base in Cuba to spy on the U.S. And, you know, so that news is not productive. But the reality is, is that, you know, if it's in the newspaper today, you know, our intelligence agencies probably knew about it already. And so uh, this outreach effort happened regardless of this news that, you know, you'd think would be de- detrimental to these ongoing efforts. I think, you know, um, we're, we're kind of in the same position we have been where, you know, um, the, the two sides are kind of dug into an extent. And while the U.S. is offering olive branches, China will continue to rebuff. But eventually, you know, um, there'll be some normalization of diplomacy, but that just may take a while. Now, uh, I think that normalcy we sh- of diplomacy, we shouldn't have uh, outsized expectations that it's going to solve everything, but I think it's just going to be, you know, kind of re-engaging in, in normal diplomacy of, you know, having conversations, trying to work through matters. But, you know, uh, some of the harder issues are probably not going to be solved in, uh, any, any, anytime soon. Well, clearly remains a very fragile relationship. Hopefully some dialogue can be achieved. Dialogue, constructive dialogue is better than no dialogue. So we'll see how this takes shape, though. Shane, thank you again for 
dropping by the podcast, keeping our listeners informed on what's taking place within the Beltway and beyond, and looking forward to picking back up with our conversation with you again next week. Great. Thank you. It was good to catch up with you, Dan. Look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Shane. And again, today we have been joined by Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. As a reminder to our clients, our listeners, you can locate the latest Washington Weekly publication, which is available now up on UBS.com slash Washington Weekly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.